everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have got a great show for you. We're going to have a secret, secret launch from Andy Rubin. Kevin has some big news for everyone. We've got some chip news. We're going to talk about the Wemo dimmer switch and a few other news bits. Plus, we have this week's sponsor, which is Eris, and our guest, who is Brett Greenstein from IBM. And he's going to talk about Watson IoT and some other cool things about bots. So let's get this party started with a quick message from one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is Affiliated Monitoring. If you are hunting for a subscription revenue model for your IoT business, you need to hear about Affiliated Monitoring. In response to a trigger from any connected device, Affiliated's professionally trained live agents can follow a protocol and reach out to your customers, their loved ones, and local emergency services. Affiliated works with hundreds of smart home security, health, and other IoT businesses. Visit affiliated.com IoT to read a case study on how they've helped a connected car startup turn an idea into a thriving business with a $100 million exit. That's affiliated.com slash IOT. That's actually a really good idea. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of businesses that could benefit from having a trigger actually do more than just send you a notification. So, mm-hmm. all right, on to the show. Let us go. Start with Andy Rubin and the essential... We can't, we have to talk about the essential phone and the essential home, one of Mm -hmm. which is only here, the essential phone. So, Kevin, do you think this is essential? Well, they would like it to be. Um, And for those who don't know, Andy Rubin uh, is the creator of Android and has left Google a couple years back, I forget when. But this is his first venture outside of life after Google. It is an Android powered phone and it's high-end specifications and built with premium materials such as titanium and ceramic, pretty much an edge-to-edge display, even more so than the Galaxy S8 that Samsung makes. I don't know, Stacey, if you've seen the, because it's edge-to-edge, here's why this phone is not essential for me. I do not like the front-facing camera cutout on the display. Oh. Did you see that yet? I did. Well, it's a 360 camera, so it has to that's separate. That's separate. The oh. front-facing camera. The front-facing camera is up at the top of the phone, just like you would have on a normal phone. But since the screen goes all the way to the top edge, it's almost like there's a hole there in the screen as you're looking at content. Oh, I do see it. Yes. It looks like a keyhole or something. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> so, okay. so not essential for me, personally. Essential would be to not see that. But regardless, regardless of that, it is all high-end specs, uh, Snapdragon 835 and 4GB RAM and all the typical high-end features. You were alluding to the back side of the phone has these two pogo pins where you place a 360-degree camera. You, it, it attaches to the phone, and then I believe it actually sends the data from that 360 camera over a 60 gigahertz Y-gig. Holy cow. I think you're yeah. right. And that mm-hmm. means that 60 gigahertz like Y-Gig has mm-hmm. found its purpose, possibly. <laughs> I have been covering this technology since like 2002, you guys. <laughs> it was like ultra-wideband, ultra-wideband, then it was something else. And so many chip companies went into this and failed. And 
The standard has always been there. Basically, it's super fast, high data rates. You can send over 60 gigahertz, but you can only do it when it's really close proximity. So this would yep. be a great use case. <laughs> yeah, uh, totally, totally. It's a perfect use case. And I knew, because I knew you'd cover this since way back, I knew you would love that little aspect of it. As we said, it runs Android. It's $699. $50 extra for the phone or the 360 camera. The 360 camera. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think I still think overall it's a reasonable price for what you're getting. I would imagine not a lot of bloatware. I'm suspecting a stock Android or slightly it is, it tweaked. Is stock Android. No bloatware. There you go. Very, no bloatware. Very No logos. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a nice looking device. Now, uh, it competes against a lot of other nice looking devices. And this is a relatively unknown company because it's essential is the name of the company. It's, it's uh, Ruben startup. So we'll have to see, does it, does it work well with security updates and so on? I don't, I, you know, there's a lot of questions to be asked here yet, but I was about to still. say, we are not a, I thought you were going to allude to the fact that we are not a phone podcast. We are IOT. And so this there is, is an IOT component and it's very vague and fluffy. So we're <laughs> going to go with what we know, which is it's, <laughs> which is <laughs> which not much, not much, but <laughs> this is going to come out this summer. This is, they call it home. It runs something called ambient OS. Mm -hmm. And this is the idea is this will work with everything. The product itself is a tiny round device. It looks kind of hockey puckish. It's at a slight angle. There's a it, screen on it that's touch it capacitive. Oh. It reminds me of an Echo Dot, just more wedge-shaped because the top is slanted, as you had said, and it has a touchscreen display. I almost wish that's what the Dot was from a hardware perspective. That'd be expensive. Touchscreen well, displays do not come cheap. True, true. And we don't know how much this is going to cost. This is coming out uh, summertime some, sometime. Yes. And so Wired, how does it work with everything? Yeah. Wired reports that it works with HomeKit, with Nest, with all of these other products that are very handy, but it's apparently doing so via reverse engineering the public APIs, which I'm not, not ideal. a huge fan of. Right. I mean, it's, it's nice for like, woo, this works. But what happens is those public APIs can change and what'll happen is it'll break your product before they can necessarily fix it. Right. So native integrations, always better from the end user experience. It's Andy Rubin. I can't imagine that these guys can't get, you know, native integration when the time comes, but I could be wrong since everyone else, since it competes with like Google, maybe they won't do a Nest integration. Yeah, hard to say. Hard to say. One of the other aspects, which is very important for our listeners, is that there's a privacy function, I guess you could say, or design, in that it tries to handle as much data as possible locally on the device. I'm not sure how that's going to work, because if it's tying into all these other platforms, it's going to be sending and receiving data and possibly giving, well, it's going to be giving data to those platforms. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that's going to work. It sounds good on paper, but let's see. Yes. And just for funsies, mm -hmm. I'm interested in this because Andy Rubin's venture group, Playground Ventures, which is also backing this, I believe, but I'm not sure. They funded something called Lighthouse. And Lighthouse is a smart home assistant that has an image component, so computer vision component, so it can actually see things, so you can gesture to it. And it sounds really cool. This is also not out yet, but cool product, but feels pretty competitive with what this is. 
Hmm. I don't see a camera or mention of a camera on the this device, so anticipate no machine vision aspect to it. Which Perhaps actually that's helped. its first integration. <laughs> it could be, but that'll help keep the cost down, number one. And two, it kind of leads back to the whole new Amazon product, which I'm still scratching my head over. I know you ordered one. The The show? The show. Indeed. Had mm-hmm. I seen the discount pack before... I had ordered my first one. I would have ordered you one too, and we could have talked. Ha ha ha. Mm. Kevin's like, because we need because we need another way to talk. We need more ways <laughs> to talk. Uh, all right, so that's essential. We'll find out more. We'll stay on this because, by golly, you know I love Andy Rubin. He's a big, open kind of open web guy, very consumeristic. I feel like his attention to the phone with some things is kind of gadgety fetishistic, which I don't think is going to work actually in the smart home space because mm. most normal people do not care if their stuff is made of titanium, right? And that's, that's for the phone. I do have some concerns there. Also, the fact that it's going to be doing everything local means it's got to have a pretty robust processor on it, which mm-hmm. is going to add to the costs. People tend to be cheap. So again, we'll see. I would love for there to be more competition in this space. And actually, this was something I was thinking about talking about before this came out, but Hmm. I actually feel that my smart home works really well right now. Hmm. I know it's weird because I've spent so much time complaining about standards, but when's the last time you guys heard me complain about like Zigbee or Z-Wave? I haven't. Right. Or or, or something that doesn't work with something because of some other protocol, maybe not necessarily radio, but... Maybe APIs, SDKs. We're getting there. I agree. Yeah, because with the Google, well, actually with the Amazon Echo and now with Google's latest integrations, I feel Mm -hmm. like basically I just say what I want and it happens. And then there's also those super powerful tools like Stringify and Ift now that it's got the maker component. Mm -hmm. I, I actually can do a lot. So this brings us to Kevin. I think you might agree with me here. (laughs) It was like, oh, that was such a subtle segue. Such a subtle segue, but oh, so timely. Uh, Yes. Okay. So after almost a year, I guess, I guess Google announced the Google Home. Yeah. Last Last IO in 2016. It wasn't available till October though. That's true. So I get a pass at least for until October. So any long time listeners will know I've passed on the Google Home because I have four Echo devices in my house mainly for the reasons that you just said, because things worked, right? Everything I needed to do has worked well with the Echo. However, I finally caved. I ordered a Google Home for two reasons. Uh, It actually has not arrived yet. It comes tomorrow, so I can't speak to how well it's working for me. But one of the reasons was all of the new integrations with the smart home products, the ones that I particularly use already. So it will essentially replace an Echo for my smart home purposes. Additionally, I do feel having used Google Assistant that when I want information, I get a broader range and more detailed information, more specific information from Google's knowledge graph as opposed to the Echo. I think Amazon's made improvements, but they have a ways to go there. So the second reason I got it, actually there's probably three reasons. The second reason I got it is because I got rid of my Pixel a few months ago and bought a Galaxy S8, which has, as we know, Bixby. I have the Assistant on there. However, I cannot use the hot word to trigger the Assistant unless the screen is on or the device is plugged in. Whereas with the Pixel, I could, I could just use it. So I got, I've been getting frustrated by that. Finally, 
there was, and I think there still is, a $30 discount on Google Home if you purchase it through Google Express, which I've never used before. It's for new Google Express customers. Uh, there's a coupon code, which maybe we can put in the show notes. We can put the link to where I got this information so that hopefully it's still available for people and they can use it. So I signed up for Google Express, probably won't use Express anymore. I'll cancel that service, but I got $30 off the home. So 99 bucks. So for all those reasons, I caved, got a Google Home. Okay. After you've had it, I want to hear your experience with music because mm-hmm. I find that the Spotify integrations, if I ask Google to play a song and I ask the Echo to play a song, the mm-hmm. Echo plays the correct song. Google seems to play like the top voted karaoke version of the song from Spotify. <laughs> well, I don't want that. So, um, but I might not be the best person to ask, however, because I don't use Spotify. None of the services I use are actually on Google Home for music. I use Sirius XM. And unfortunately, because my family all has iPhones, we have an Apple Music family plan. So neither of those work with it. Best I'm going to be able to do is use the free version of Google Play Music. I'm shaking my fist at the sky, not at you, but at the fact that your music library doesn't work across all devices. We have gone so far backwards, you guys. It doesn't work across many devices. And I kind of feel, along with smartwatches, music is actually a lock-in for assistants as well as smartwatches. I agree. Don't like it. I do not. Apple... Apple, though, is getting even more locked in, more vertically integrated. There is a report out last week that Apple is designing its own AI phone chip. So Mm. this is pretty exciting news, totally fits with the Apple ecosystem, where Apple was the, I want to say it was the first phone manufacturer to really decide to design its own ARM-based chips for the phone. Those are the A slash number processors. <laughs> like, 52s, 72s, et cetera. No, yeah. no, no, no. Those are the ARM processors, but the Apple processors. Oh, are- oh, okay. Yeah. So we're up to the A9X or... A9, yeah. I was 10. like, I don't know where we are right now. A8, yep. A9? So Apple does that. Um, they also design their own chip for their wireless headphones, actually. The so, W1. Yes. And they were one of the first to create a a sensor unit, a sensor processing core. So that uh, it's their M, their M series. M series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is not crazy that Apple would say, you know what? This whole AI thing, this, this basically execution, this inference of artificial intelligence algorithms, we got to separate that. We got to put that someplace else and we've got to design something special for that. The reason they can do this is because they sell so many darn iPhones and because it's going to be a huge savings, maybe not huge, it will be a savings on battery life. Mm-hmm. And that's really important because running these algorithms can take a lot of processing power and also it needs to happen really fast. And you don't want that competing with, you know, trying to load your webs, your your browser, you know, on your phone or do any right. other stuff. You want to shunt that off and have it magically happen. In the you know, we're really seeing, a, and I, I'm going to say this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because maybe I do have this wrong, but we're, in my opinion, really seeing almost uh, a march toward ASICs, application-specific integrated circuits, for just about everything now. It used to be that the, the phone processor would just do everything, but now we've got, and we've had, digital signal processors. And now we're building chips for AI, and building chips for this, and building chips for that. 
so we can optimize, as you said, the processing power for the right task and the battery life for the right task. So we can get a good mix of, of battery life in a day. So I think you're going to see a lot more of this, especially with AI and assistance. Um, Apple's certainly not the only one working on this, in my opinion. And I'll be curious to see what advantages they tout when, if and when this comes out. Yes. And we've talked about this on previous shows, but this is what we've talked about is the end of general purpose computing. We've come yep. to a point where battery life is so significant, the volumes for not just phone makers, but even some of the big web companies means that they can build specialized, not just equipment, but silicon. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge existential threat to Intel. So I'll just bring that mm -hmm. up again, because... It, yep. It's a pretty big one. Uh, Kevin, we actually forgot something. We forgot your disclosure. So retroactive disclosure. Time. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So I do work for Google. I do not work on anything IoT related. Um, and all opinions are my own. Oh, this was a lot more credible before you bought the Google Home. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> no, we do not question. Kevin is the height of integrity. We love him for it. Speaking of chips, ARM. They finally announced what they're going to do with that dynamic architecture that they announced probably three or four months ago. They mm, back have, in March. Yep. Back in March. So they have a new Cortex A75, an A55, and a brand new Molly chip. Only the Cortex chips use the dynamic, which is basically a new way of parallel processing multi-threading. It's, it's better for AI. Oh, there's that word again. So all of those, they're, they're more energy efficient. Really nifty. And then the Mali chip is just, it's, it's like a better graphics chip. It's more power efficient. It's more powerful. I don't know. There's not a lot to say, to be honest. <laughs> right. So, so we talked about the dynamic CPUs. I kind of felt it was a little bit of marketing fluff back in March. I feel a little less so in that instead of pairing big and little chips in terms of, high compute and high battery life with less compute and lower battery life, you can mix and match a little bit. So you can go up to eight cores, I believe, but you can say six or seven of them are low power and only one is high power. You can do whatever you need to do for whatever device you're designing. So I'm a little bit more impressed by this. I mean, you could have a, a core dedicated just to machine learning, for example. And again, this is that modularity. This mm -hmm. is this is key, you guys. Ta-da! The theme of the week. Modular! All right, moving on from chips. Verizon has a smart hub. Sort of. Sort of, yeah. This was my thought. Kevin, you want to go for it? Okay, well, this is marketing fluff. Can I just say that right <laughs> up front? <laughs> yeah, you can. Okay. So Verizon put out a press release uh, last week. Turn your house into a Verizon 4G LTE home with Smart Hub. So that's the name of the product, Smart Hub, capital S, capital H. I fail to see the Smart Hub capabilities of it. It seems to me like it's basically a way to bring wireless broadband to your house, which there's merit for that. People out in rural areas that may be they don't have cable choices, Fios isn't there, and so on. Maybe the, you know they're using phones as hotspots for their primary connectivity. I get it. This, this makes sense. It's a $200 4G router, essentially. But Verizon made a big to-do about how it's going to work well with all of your smart devices, including more than 200 Wi-Fi products and so on and so forth. So I'm thinking, before I even read this, I'm like, oh, it's like a router with you know that acts as a smart hub. But it doesn't seem to be that. It doesn't seem to have those kind of smarts. It just seems to be a way to have 
connectivity for your devices, like maybe like a gateway at best. Am, am I misunderstanding it? Well, it looks a little smarter. I mean, this is still not something I would buy because, well, I'll tell you. So basically, it's $200. <laughs> it's got the backup to the 4G network. It works on Wi-Fi. It connects to over 200 Wi-Fi devices. It's got a tiny little OLED screen at the top that tells you how many devices are on your network and some other things. And in the app, it does let you control and schedule like routines and that sort of thing. So you can, mm. you can tell anything connected to it. It reminds me of the almond mm. routers because right. in, in just imagine adding 4g, the idea of 4g is basically it also has a backup battery. So when your power goes out, you still have cellular connectivity to things that run on battery. Right. Well, this only has cellular connectivity, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, that's stupid. <laughs> well, not necessarily. Like, again, for ru- people in rural areas, I think it's that's good because they don't have many broadband choices. Okay, that that's that's fair. That's going to be but as expensive. Far as it, yes. But, okay, so you've got your cellular to Wi-Fi connection happening there. That's Yay. But if your power goes out, you know, you're not going to be able to control most of these devices because most Wi-Fi based devices, which is what this works with, they are plugged in because Wi-Fi is such a power hog. Right. So that's where I'm kind of like, eh. <laughs> it seems like a mishmash of, of a lot of technology that may not make doesn't, sense together. Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. Again, if you don't have good wired broadband opportunities at your house then this might make sense. You're right. It will be expensive. But as a smart hub, I just, I'm just kind of questioning it. Yeah. So we're kind of meh on this. Meh. Meh. Oh, but we do want to talk about, so one of our listeners, John, sent us an email, John Morse. He actually sent a comment on one of our last blogs that was super helpful. So he introduced us to this TI has a technology called Captivate. And it basically is touch technology that that works through wood. Which, mm. Wow, that would be so cool. He points out that this would be great for like the IKEA furniture. I agree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to like that. I'm I'm very excited about like touch technology that works through fabrics because I'm like, oh, you could put like a capacitive touchscreen on the arm of your couch. But here, they're like, you could put it on your coffee table as long as it's the MCUs can sense through laminated plywood that's up to 0.75 inches thick and particle board that's one inch thick. So I don't know. I think this is kind of neat, right, Kevin? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you can integrate capacitive touch into wood products, furniture and such, it would be great. Do you have to plug in your furniture to make this work? I mean, this says it can run on a battery for a certain amount of time. But if you're going to... Then you're changing the battery in your table. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So ideally, yeah, you probably want a dedicated power source. But if you do that, then you think of the possibilities of adding integrated wireless charging into the furniture, which is available today. But, you know, this just makes sense to have it go hand in hand with a capacitive touch element. So, like, again, my my sit-stand desk is wood at the top, and I would love to not have physical buttons underneath it to raise it or lower it. I mean, it'd be great to just go to a section of the desk itself and just press and have it do its thing. And it's already plugged in. I would love this. You know exactly. where I would love this? Where? I would actually love this on, like, my dining room table to control my dining room lights. How awesome. You'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, it's a little bright in here. As the sun goes down, you could, like, move your dimmer up a little bit. I, yeah, of course, I, I don't need wireless charging in my dining room table. So that would that's a battery kind of thing. Right, right. 
Okay, so there is one downside. Would you like to tell them the downside? Oh, yes, the downside. I almost forgot about it because it's barely mentioned in the press release. (laughs) Yes, I'm just going to read this flat out from the press release. Touch technology embedded in wood might also be subject to moisture penetration stemming from a spilled drink on the arm of a chair or rain on a door frame. Yeah, so... If you're going to use it in your dining room table, don't put your drinks down on capacitive coasters. There you go. Um, So really cool technology. TI's got it. I thought this was great. So thank you so much, John. We appreciate your diligence there. Mm -hmm. All right. I promised you last week that I would talk to you about the Wemo Wi-Fi dimmer switch. Dun, dun, dun. And this is Wemo's first dimmer switch. Um, They had a normal Wi-Fi connected switch that was on and off, and some people liked it, some people did not. The dimmer switch is $80, so it's it's pricier than my favorite switches, which are still Lutron. And it's pricier than the Leviton Wi-Fi Decora series, which I also have installed, because those are about 50 bucks, and they work with the Amazon Echo without a hub. For the Lutron to work, you need a hub. Hmm. So... My install process was a little wonky because I've got some crazy wiring, so I ran into some troubles in the first spot I was going to put it, so I stuck it in a different spot entirely. And I put it in the bathroom. And this is a really nice light. It's got a capacitive touch dimmer, so you just move your finger up and down the dimmer, which is kind of neat to turn the lights on and off. And Mm -hmm. it's got a little LED in it that turns on when the light is triggered by something. So it turns different colors based on what product has triggered it. And that is something really cool. Cause if you set, like, if you're like me, you set a lot of different recipes or things up and then suddenly your lights are going on and you have no idea why this <laughs> believe me guys happens to me more often than not. So mm-hmm. being able to look at it and see blue and be like, Oh, Hey, that, that means I just turned it on with the Amazon Echo, which is maybe not a weird thing. But if it turns orange, that means I've turned it on with if the ift, which actually is a nice thing because, you know, that might be an automation that I did. Right. So I like the light. I do feel it's expensive. And then the other thing to know about it. Oh, it's got the most wonderful labeling on its wires. Just lovely. I gotta say, you guys, it was just wonderful. <laughs> uh, but. The switch itself is friggin' huge, just so big. So if you don't have a lot of room, like I initially tried to install it in a three gang switch and there's a lot of wires crammed back there. It wasn't going to fit. It was just too, Hmm. it's bigger even than, so it's bigger than the Lutrons. It's bigger than the Leviton. It goes about as deep as the Leviton, but it's also a little wider, I believe. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be an issue if you don't have a lot of room in the back in your switch box. Or you can just hire an electrician and they'll just magically make it work. You know, it's it's interesting because all the, the boxes and all were designed for traditional light switches for years and years and years. And now we're adding more smarts and chips and things, radios and such into the switches that I wonder, you know, are we running out of room in a sense? Man, okay, that's a hugely certified product, thank God. Because, you know, you don't, a standard sure. switch box is, is really important. It, it's standard. <laughs> standard for a reason. Yeah, these are, I mean, these are things that are regulated by, you know, local codes and everything. So. Yeah, yeah. That's going to be a challenge. But, but yes, it is something to think about. If you don't have a lot of room back there, you're going to be folding wires for quite some time. I, I, I anticipate embedded speakers, maybe even cameras and such and switches. Yes, there's a lot of, well, there's motion sensors, there's microphone switches. 
some of those mm-hmm. stick out like your your relay switch from wink that you had mm-hmm. oh yeah did that stick out a little bit more from the wall or? yes it did okay so it, it moved forward as opposed to backwards right which means you couldn't install it in like a, a multi-gang switch right mm, it would be a challenge okay all right things to think about switch mm. boxes all right thank you so much kevin now we will stay tuned for a our guest this week brett greenstein from ibm and before we talk to him we are going to have a quick message from this week's sponsor Hey, everyone, we are breaking into this week's podcast with a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Eris, and I have Z Hussein, who is the CTO and founder of Eris, here to talk to me about hot markets for the Internet of Things. So quick refresher, tell people what Eris is. Eris is a company that provides a complete solution from the devices that are located out in the field all the way back through the networks to the storage and analytics functions that are necessary to support IoT applications from small, medium, and large enterprises for their customers or for internal use. Let's talk about the hottest markets for IoT. What are the most rapidly growing areas for it? Well, one of the natural things about cellular, which is what we do and provide for connectivity services, is the fact that devices that need to be mobile can be on our network. So roughly half of the units tend to be in the automotive and fleet management space, not surprisingly. On the other hand, one of the largest markets that is coming up to speed is the healthcare market. Because of the impact that IoT solutions can have on the cost problems that are being encountered in the healthcare arena, that market is exploding. Those are both really good industries. So how should they think about the trade-offs between Wi-Fi and cellular? Certainly. Uh, Wi-Fi tends to be a very ubiquitous solution if it's available in a given residence or a given business or a given building. The only issue is that you have to do a fair amount of configuration to be able to use that network. And not all applications can take advantage of that or the maintenance and debugging and support can become an issue. So people like to be able to use networks that aren't dependent on someone locally providing a support, a connectivity support. So cellular and low-power wide area networks tend to be the method of choice because the network's will manage that for you. Eris manages the device behavior on the network because they can reach out and see the device completely independent of any local setup issue that might exist. So now I know what's hot and how to connect it. When should a business think about beginning to implement an IoT solution? The best time to implement an IoT solution is when you know the problem you're trying to solve and you have information that you're trying to get remotely and you have an understanding of what value that information has for you, your company, or your potential customers. If you don't take advantage of the fact that data is available and that the solutions that are being implemented in the IoT space can provide you the necessary information in a way that will make meaningful sense for your business actions, then that's not the right time to start. Z, where can I find out more about what Eris is doing here? So if they want to find out more about IoT solutions and how to deploy an IoT solution for their particular problem, I would highly recommend that they download a copy of the free ebook that I have published. Um, it's available on our website, www.eris.com. And they can also listen to a copy of this podcast and other podcasts at www.eris.com slash podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. 
And we are joined this week by Brett Greenstein, who is Vice President for Watson IoT over at IBM. Hi, Brett. How you doing? Very good. Nice to talk to you, Stacey. It is awesome to talk to you. Actually, we've talked before, you guys, and Brett is a font of information about the smart home. But that is not really what we're going to talk too much about today. Instead, we are going to focus on Watson's IoT business and also a broader question of how do we go from all of this sensor data to actually taking action or getting valuable insights from it? So let's let's start off with the hard question, Brett. I've got gobs of data. I'm just tracking everything. How do I take that and get from data to insights? I think you have to recognize that most of the IoT data that people collect today is probably useless. It's only valuable for microseconds. It is often noise, and finding the signal from the noise is certainly the hard part. We've found that having models that define people and places and things, how we think they might work, um, is a necessary starting point. And then we leverage um, analytics to look for what's normal and what's not. So that could be something that this gets rid of some of the noise right away. For example, you could look at data coming off a thermostat in your house. That data, for the most part, doesn't move. But if it spikes to 900 degrees, there is probably a serious issue. Or if it drops really quickly, there's another serious issue. Being able to know what's normal and what's not can be done with machine learning algorithms to assess anomalous behavior. And that could be something that happens in a moment, could be happening something that happens trends over time, and it has to be based on having some hypothesis of what's normal, but then using analytics to look for the variations in data that would tell you when those moments happen. And that's what we're really looking for is not the data itself, but the moments uh, that matter. Okay. I just realized that you're going to be a great person to have because you can probably help me break down a couple concepts for people. Because right now we talk about analytics all the time. We also talk about Mm -hmm. machine learning. And then we talk about things like Mm -hmm. AI and deep learning. And a lot of people, I feel like people kind of just throw those out there and they're used very interchangeably. They probably shouldn't be. So maybe you can help us by helping us set up definitions and how we should think about each of these concepts. Of course. And I probably will not use whatever textbook definitions exist, but my own sort of simpler way of breaking it down into what I'd say three categories. One is after data has happened, there's plenty of analytics tools that go in and look at how you can visualize it and pivot it and and sort through it to find correlations and patterns that you expect to be there and that you're looking for. You're looking for particular moments, you know what you're looking for, so you're kind of sorting through the data, glancing through it, and providing you know, different, different ways of organizing that data. That's sort of after it already happened. Now, things that happen while the data is occurring, you may have some real-time analytics, something that is looking for a set of business rules or conditions that occur as data is flowing in, and you're looking for moments there. You're looking for variations. Here's where machine learning can be used to help see if things are trending in a way that is anomalous. So you, you build a, a picture, a baseline view, and the machine learning is watching the data as it's coming through every day. So that thermostat data, every day, 7 a.m., probably changes because I changed the thermostat. It varies with season. It varies with things. And you sort of know what's normal because the machine learning is watching it. And then when it acts abnormally, you catch it. So you've got the what happens after data was generated. You've got what's happening as the data is being generated. Then you have learning systems. Those are two different types. And I'm not an expert on either one, but you've got sort of this assisted learning. This is where the machine is catching things, and then you're telling 
through human intervention, whether these things are correct or not, and whether they start to approximate a model. This is how you might train a system, for example, with images. You might feed it 50 or 100 or 1,000 images that say this is, you know, a dog. And each time it does, you feed it in, and, it, and then based on that, you can correct it. So the next picture you show, it's going to say, I think this is a dog. It might be a cat. You say it's incorrect. You say what it really is, and you keep feeding it, and it, it will continue to approximate and get closer and closer to accuracy based on the wide range of things you feed it. So this is where there's human intervention in both what you decide to feed it and, of course, what feedback you get. And then there are systems that are uh, more advanced that, that learn on their own. And there's recently been several articles about systems, for example, that just get fed procedures and things that people do. It watches what people do and then learns quickly from that. And that's less of the assisted part. That's more of the, the deep learning part. I would say that there's a range of these different types of systems now, and people tend to lump them into one category, probably incorrectly. Yes. Thank you for going. I know that's a scary question to answer, but you just like rocked it. So thank you for that, because I do think that when it comes to business, it's all lumped together. But really, for most businesses, probably only the first two are really important today, or maybe the first three. What, what are your thoughts there? Well, they're the most practical. They're certainly the more dominant themes today. Uh, we've all been doing analytics on data after it was created for a very long time. We, you know, we called analytics and we called it big data because it was more buzzworthy, but it was still effectively visualizing and, and pivoting data in different tables and different structures so you could see it and to look for patterns you were looking for. But I think this idea of systems that can learn that are assisted is, is clearly relevant in almost every process in every industry, primarily because we're really bad at doing something more than a few times and we miss things. And if you can bring the very best of what you do into these systems and they can learn, you can improve that. You can improve the repeatability. You can do it at scale in ways that people can't. But we're still unique in being able to tell a dog from a cat until we teach a system and then it can tell. Not every time, not perfectly, but better and better the more you teach it. All right. Let's think about from a business perspective, because IBM mm -hmm. is nothing if not practical, which I love about it. How are customers trying to use the assisted machine learning? So we'll call Watson, that mm -hmm. feels like an assisted machine learning kind of technology. How are they using mm -hmm. that for IoT today? A lot of ways. We've got some really great clients who are using visual recognition to help manage drones. And in particular, leveraging training of different things you might look for in a drone that might be inspecting power lines, for example. If we can catch defects and problems with a drone operating from perspectives that people can't and catch things that are more subtle and, and faster than people can, then it makes our jobs easier because we can direct people to go fix the things that need to be fixed. We'll know exactly what's wrong with things. And, and it's a very powerful technology. So we're using visual recognition um, in drones over power lines, and we can use it in a variety of settings where that perspective is unique, where a drone has a a bird's eye view that people don't have. We're also using it in manufacturing. So we've done a lot of really great work with uh, several companies bringing um, image recognition to help do defect analysis in manufacturing. And my very first job of a really long time ago uh, was doing visual inspection. And now there's a semiconductor company using Watson to do that, probably much better than I ever did it, and faster. But the other part is it can also learn and change over time. You may find that this machine tends to skew a little to the left, and that one machine doesn't over there. So instead of training people to catch all those variations, you can also train systems and deploy different models to different tools in the manufacturing line based on their uniqueness as well. So it's a very powerful way to scale out and speed up defect recognition. 
We're doing similar things with acoustic analytics. So listening for the sounds that are normal, knowing if a machine is about to break a bearing, knowing if in a house, you know, glass broke and somebody is, needs potentially a break-in or something like that. Anything we can do that sort of listens and understands acoustic data and learns from that what things are good or bad, and then knowing what to do at those moments. And we do similar things with voice, with personality assessment that might tell you a lot about the feedback of your customers or how people are feeling in an elevator. We find that all that unstructured data really lends itself to these, to these learning systems. Let's just go there because you brought up assistance. And I talk to all kinds of assistants in my home. I talk to companies who are trying to bring voice assistant to the enterprise. It feels like this should be a perfect place for Watson or the Watson technology, but it isn't. I never, people do not talk about Watson in that sense. So should they be, or is Watson something else entirely? No, they should be. And they are, but you'll often see that we're the technology inside a lot of things. So that makes it a little harder. I also think that the consumer excitement and energy around assistance you can buy at a store and bring it to your house is very, very high. And it sucks up a lot of the energy on conversation. But it's not a bad thing because I think it's also created a level of comfort that voice interaction and assistance are a part of our lives. You said you have many in your house. I have one of everything, more than one of everything in my house also. And I like that there are different assistants who are good at different things. Maybe I'm more of an early adopter, but I think for all of us, we're going to realize that there's going to be you know, an assistance in different places we're going to be more comfortable working with than we ever were before because they're going to be good at something. With IBM, we bring a Watson and natural language and, and a more deeper view of understanding people into assistance that we're doing in hotels and concierge and in various settings. And you'll see much more of it you know, publicly with a program we call With Watson that has Watson embedded in things. You'll even see if you go to the weather company app, we have Watson embedded now in the weather app for, for consumers. And we're introducing more and more dialogue-driven, insightful services even into the weather company app. This is something that that we felt that we could bring a dialogue and an engaging kind of service with Watson in a consumer app. We can do it in cars, we can do it in hotels and other places. So we're working with clients all around the world to bring a deeper understanding of people using Watson in those settings. And then we also obviously do it in the enterprise. And so you won't see the same level of chatter about what we're doing in the enterprise, but Watson has a rich set of engagements across almost every industry. We talk so much about the cognitive era and one of the things I liked is the thought that this is not a passing thing. It's one of those things that AI is now infusing the way we work, the systems we use. We're getting comfortable with chat interfaces. Half the time you talk to somebody on the internet, you don't even know if it's a real person or, or a chatbot or something else helping you. We're getting used to it. This is the beginning of an era, so more so than a passing technology phase. You know, the smartphone may come and go. I don't know when it's going to go, but it may come and go. Um, but cognition and AI, these are things that are going to be with us for a very long time, only improving over time. All right. So we've talked a little bit about assistance and Watson as an assistant. But just in general, where do you think all of this is heading? These voice-activated assistants throughout my home. I think we're moving from a place where people were doing fairly difficult home automation stuff. If you were using you know, hubs and things and setting up rules and, and scenes and all that very complicated for most people and early adopters did it and everybody else looks at it like it's a bunch of wires and, and scary stuff. But I think we're moving to a point where assistants are trainable. I already use if this, then that with several assistants where I can create my own custom dialogue and words and, and stuff. So when people come over, you know, I can say, hello, Stacy. And it says, Stacy, it's been a long time since I've seen you. 
it feels as if you're understood. And I think it's just an illusion, but it's the beginning, I think, of the expectation people have. Because I tried that recently and I had someone come over and they said, oh, you look very nice today. They looked all around. Where's the camera? How did, how did that thing on my desk know they looked nice today? And then they wanted to answer it and it didn't have a response. But I think we leap to wanting to be understood so quickly that if anything can understand us, really understand how we feel, be able to respond more dynamically, we embrace it. And I think that's, a, that's where the future is headed is much more of these assistance and interactive capabilities that we will embrace as an extension of the family. How many people do you know who have a Roomba? And of those, how many of them named it? A lot. <laughs> I think people get very comfortable with this idea that there's something there taking care of them, listening to them or understanding them. And so I've got a bunch of experiments in my own house that, that replicate the feeling of that. And I'm amazed at how quickly even non-technical people, you know, kind of get excited about it. This idea is my devices then know me and what I want and need before I program them. Absolutely. Why should you have to ask to turn on down your lights? When you come downstairs, your home should turn your lights on for you. It should say, good morning, Stacy. It's nice to see you. It's going to rain today. Don't forget your umbrella. You know, your car's low on gas. You know, here's what happened in the news you might care about. Not all at once, but you should, you, it should understand you and the state of your home and where you are, where you're going and offer things rather than waiting for you to keep asking lights turn to blue, unlock front door, start car. You shouldn't have to say all those things. How far away are we from something like that, do you think? It's going to happen faster than we think. Just as the smartphone became something that we people embraced much quicker than everyone expected, because it's basically a computer in people's pocket. I mean, it was a time when that sounded ridiculous, and now not having one's ridiculous. I think we're only a few years away from, from having a much more interactive home, hotel, car, environment that is proactive and anticipates our needs and suggests things at the right time and feels like an extension of what we do, not something that is invasive and not something that is, uh, you know, annoying to have to ask 12 different commands to. So how do we get to that point? Because right now, Stan, I mean, that is that has always been the vision. Maybe not always. That has, yeah. has been a consistent vision, at least. And the things standing in the way were things like the expense of getting these devices into homes, the lack of standardization mm -hmm. around them, concerns about privacy. And I don't even think we've actually solved the UI challenge yet, but we also need to know like who's where in a home and getting some of that information out. So are these the things that stand of, in the way? There's a lot of pieces to solve there. Okay. I, there I like there are, but it, it's kind of um, cascading now. It's what started out as, boy, I'd really like to have it. Like that was in every science fiction movie for the last 30 years. And yet we didn't have anything in our homes that spoke back to us. Now there's millions of people who do. You know, you can buy in any store and bring in your house and it, it can do some very, very basic things. So we suddenly now have these endpoints in people's homes. There will be more because every company is working on some level of endpoint, whether it's cars and other places. So we'll be able to at least have a thing to talk to, but they're not generally very smart yet. They're more like a mobile app with a voice instead of an actually understanding thing. Um, but that's coming through all kinds of different work. We've got some really cool work around modeling of people. We did it starting for from work on aging in place, helping people to live better and safer in their home instead of going into um, a healthcare facility. And we started building models of people, understanding them better, things. So we're starting to extend that into some of those solutions that I talked about. And I see other companies building voice recognition so that they know who's speaking to it. I've seen solutions around proximity to know based on a mobile device you have, how, who's closest, who might be the one talking to get a better sense of who might be issuing a command. So, so much happening kind of all in parallel. I think it's just a matter of 
building up critical mass of some of these technologies and enough microphone speaker kind of interfaces in people's lives that the comfort levels are high, the incremental cost is low. The cloud services are very, very inexpensive to deliver this, but it does require some innovation, some companies to really step forward and take a little bit of risk in introducing the new technologies. All right. And when I think about these in this future, I I think about the Amazon Echo or the Google Home mm-hmm. or less Siri, but you know, we'll throw them in there. Apple. Yeah. I don't think about IBM. So where is Watson in all of this? Well, Watson's working with uh, consumer electronics companies around the world, as well as, you know, cars and, and telco providers and others. So you'll see us, maybe you'll see us a little differently than you might see others. But there's a, there's a role for all of us in this. And I think for companies that are trying to deliver a deeper engagement between their product and users, there's capabilities in Watson that don't exist in any of the others. But I'm also pleased that there's others out there because they're also bringing an ecosystem of developers. They're bringing a comfort level with voice interfaces. They're helping drive improvements, just if nothing else, through competitiveness in speech to text, which basically hadn't changed much for most people you know, in decades and suddenly now has improved dramatically because of competition, machine learning, volumes of users, things like that. So I think you'll see Watson in many things you buy that directly engage with consumers where where that engagement is the value proposition for car manufacturers and others. And you'll see home assistants, whether it's Google or Amazon or others, obviously in lots of homes. I'm hoping there's some emerging standards that happen here. I still have yet to see it that would allow application developers to build things that are extensible into multiple environments. So I still have yet to see that kind of standardization occur, which is what happened in the world of HTML and Java and everything else, where basically you could build for one web server, move to another. I think eventually you'll see expertise and skills and applications in a voice interface be a little less stuck in an ecosystem and more open. So we're obviously aiming for openness. And I'd like to see IoT devices be as open as possible in how they integrate, in which I'm seeing through things like IFT and others that are not tied to any one particular system. Got it. All right, Brett, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, you're very welcome. Pleasure talking to you, Stacey, as always. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want more IoT news, you can sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things, at stacyonIoT.com. We'll see you next week.